0: I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement.
1: I believe that each of us is born with a divine mandate or sacred blueprint that has been created only for us, and that the path it's set before us is unique to every individual, as are the ways we're meant to be supported in developing that path and living out that path, becoming all that we're here to be. I believe that the seeker's one true quest in this incarnated life is to discover our own holy nature, to embody this holy nature fully, and to fall deeply and unabashedly in love. To fall deeply and unabashedly in love with the magnificent awe-inspiring mystery that resides within us, the indwelling mystery, and at the heart of all creation outside us in everything that exists.
0: Meredith Jordan, M.A., is a psychotherapist and spiritual director. For more than 25 years, she's worked with adults and children embarking on a spiritual journey to develop or deepen a personal relationship with the mystery many people call God. She is the co founder of Rogers McKay, a multi faith educational organization that provides programming for seekers who want to create a sustainable spiritual life by listening for the presence of the sacred in their everyday lives. She lives in southern Maine, where she has a private counseling practice. Welcome, Meredith.
1: Thank you, Anthony. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, how did you come to write these books? You've written two books. The first one is Embracing the Mystery, and the other one is Standing Still.
1: Yes, that's correct. Uh, There's a story behind the writing of my books, which is a kind of interesting story. I founded, co-founded Rogers McKay, which is a multi-faith spiritual educational organization in southern Maine with a colleague of mine about 12 years ago. And we founded that organization to provide spiritual programming of the kind that was not being provided by traditional religious organizations, um, spiritual programming that helped people look at relationship to the sacred mystery or to God, um, to the indwelling wisdom, whatever name one gives to that holy presence at the center of all life, to help them find a relationship with that and deepen their relationship with that mystery in ways that churches were not addressing. Churches pretty much... religious traditions, I should say, pretty much keep God in a particular box and use a particular image for God. And for many people, that is not congruent with their experience of uh, relationship with the sacred.
0: Well, their everyday life, right? With their everyday life. It's somehow compartmentalized. Exactly.
1: So we were looking to provide programming that broadened and expanded those experiences for people and supported them in Uh, not only uh, having the kinds of encounters that many of us have in our ordinary lives with the sacred, but in being able to name those experiences and talk about them freely with other people. So we founded Rogers McKay and began to do that programming, had a wonderful response to that, and for a number of years we worked um, through Rogers McKay to present that kind of spiritual programming in southern Maine and throughout New England to churches, schools, Community organizations, uh, people from the community—quite a wide range of audience that we had for our programming. And then in the year 2000, we'd been working together at that point, my colleague and I, for about six years. She is an ordained clergywoman, and I'm a licensed uh, psychotherapist in oh, the state sure. of Maine. Oh, so sure. And we she's provided, ordained
0: in the Episcopal Church.
1: No, ordained in the uh, United Church of Christ, which oh, is congregational denomination in New England. That's what it's known as. And um, she was working part-time in the church and part-time for Rogers McKay. And one day in August of 2000, the church that she was working for burned to the ground. And it was a sudden, unexpected, catastrophic event that totally changed her life and took her out of the work that we were doing and and, uh, propelled her immediately back into full-time work in the church because suddenly she had a church congregation in crisis. They'd lost their church. They'd lost their community. They had to make major decisions about rebuilding.
0: Well, it's like their body.
1: It's like their home, their spiritual they, they family was gone.
0: Yeah.
1: I was part of that church community. And I was there the day the church burned. I was among the people standing in the streets as this church burned to the ground. And people were moving around comforting each other, singing with one another, watching the tower fall and the walls fall in and the stained glass windows melt and it was just a, a it was an amazing apocalyptic kind of event in the lives of all of us and as these people who were my friends and uh members of my spiritual community were moving around comforting each other they were all saying to one another don't worry don't worry we'll rebuild but in me a different voice was sounding in me the voice was saying hush, be very quiet, go home, get still, do nothing. And I heard the voice as clear as someone standing beside me speaking to me, but it was so um, inconsistent with what everyone around me was saying that I was puzzled by this. But I did, in fact, follow that voice. I went home. I left the church I did not go back to the church, and I did not participate in all the events that led to the rebuilding of that church, which took about five years and used up a great deal of the lives of many people, the life energy, the life force of many people. Instead, I went home and I spent a year in what I called sabbatical, because Ellie, my colleague, was no longer available to do programming with me. I put all of the work of Rogers McKay on hold for a year and just was quiet and listened as I finally found a vocabulary for it. What I called this process was listening for my next instructions. (laughs) So I was waiting for my next instructions. And it took a long time for those instructions to come. I sat in the quiet in solitude for a long period of time through an entire season of a fall, a winter, a winter a spring, another summer leading up to the first year anniversary of the fire. And somewhere toward the end of that year, what I began to become aware of were the many stories that lived in me from my clients and from the people who had been in our programs of their personal encounters with the sacred or with the mystery. And these stories began to percolate and come back to mind Um, to uh, inform me of the many ways people had encountered, encountered this magnificent mystery that we call God. Often ways that were not talked about in any religious tradition that I ever participated in in my life. So I began to realize I had stories to tell, and I began to write the stories one at a time. And the stories accumulated, and they reached a point where there were enough of them and enough positive response from people who read them that it occurred to me they belonged together. And I needed to compile them into a book. But there was no singular thread running through these stories. they It wasn't as though I had one theme that I followed from beginning to end, although now looking back, I could say in the first book, Embracing the Mystery, the sacred unfolding in everyday people in ordinary lives. the the one theme in the, of that book is the encouragement to myself and to all people to experience the mystery of God directly and personally, rather than through intermediaries such as religious traditions and um, those people who, uh, by vocation. Um, promote religious traditions.
0: Well, most of these folks have
1: come to that of themselves. That's what I realized as I began to compile the stories. But the stories just came together one by one by one by one. So it wasn't as though I, I thought at the beginning, I'm about to write a book. I didn't. It was only when 40 stories were compiled that I looked at them and said, there's a book here. And this book could be useful to people who have had experiences that stand outside the religious boxes that don't belong in any particular religious tradition and who have discounted for themselves the importance of those encounters with the mystery because they don't fit in religious traditions. And they and say,
0: who am I to have something like exactly, that?
1: Exactly. They say, who am I to have that kind of experience? And they discount those experiences as unimportant or um, Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, that failed to inform them in the full way that they could be informed of the mystery if they were paying attention to those stories. So they pushed them aside. And uh, when I finally had all the stories compiled, it occurred to me that this book could be useful to that population of people who stand outside religious traditions and are looking for some guidance about the importance of their own experiences. Are these experiences real? Are they trustable? Are they leading them somewhere? And where are they leading them to? So I put the book together and really birthed it into the world only to find that it was welcomed by thousands of people who were waiting for material such as this.
0: There are so many people they that are hungry, so hungry for this.
1: Thirsty for this kind of material just starving for this kind of material. So I felt very fortunate to have listened to that voice who spoke to me in the streets the day the church burned down saying, go home, be quiet, be very still, and wait for your next instructions.
0: Well, that took a lot of courage to do that.
1: It did take a lot of because courage our, to do our, that.
0: Because our culture says, oh, you have to do something, and if you're sitting around, you know, I mean, my goodness, particularly in Puritan or New England, <laughs>
1: You know? Well, that's true. There is some of that in Puritan, New England, that's for sure. Um, I was continuing my psychotherapy practice, yeah. so it wasn't that I was twiddling my thumbs exactly. But the part of me that had been deeply involved for six or seven years at that point in developing spiritual program programming was very still. That, that part of me was quiet for a year, truly on sabbatical. And I missed it, dearly missed doing that work. It was very creative very innovative work, a lot of fun, um, brought a lot of joy to my life and the lives of the people that I worked with. So it was hard to say no to that for a year. But it was very clear to me that waiting for my next instructions meant don't do anything until I let you know, I being the great I, the mystery, the voice of God, um, until I let you know what the next step is. And when the timing is right, I will let you know.
0: And you knew? I did know. How did you know?
1: As I say, it was really a matter of knowing piece by piece, chapter by chapter, story by story. As I wrote the stories and I put them out one by one into the world, people began to say, this is what I've been looking for. This This is what I've been waiting to hear. I've needed a story like this to be able to go back and trust my own experiences and my own encounters with the mystery. So once I saw the effect that the stories were having on the hungry spirits of of uh, genuine spiritual seekers, but seekers who did not stand inside traditional right. uh, religious thinking, mm-hmm. I um, I really understood at that point that there was a place for that kind of material. And at that point, something other than courage took over. It just was, this is what's right... This is what's meant to happen.
0: Well, it already had a momentum.
1: It had a momentum. It did. It had a truth to it, a deep, resonating truth to it that came out of a place of authenticity in the lives of the people whose stories are told in my own life as I told my own stories. they came from a place of um, what I call the deep heart in me and in other people. And the deep heart is the place where I believe the mystery speaks to us most clearly.
0: Well, we're going to have to take a short break here. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement with my guest psychologist, Meredith Jordan. And um, how can people get a hold of you, Meredith, uh, with your website and your phone number? Mm
1: -hmm. Phone number in Maine is 207-283-0752, and our website is www.rogersmckay.org.
0: Great. Well, we'll take a short break, and we're going to be right back. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today, and I'm here with my guest, psychotherapist Meredith Jordan. Welcome back, Meredith.
1: Thank you, Anthony.
0: And before the break, we were talking about the deep heart. Tell us about the deep heart.
1: Well, the deep heart is the part of us that transcends the small I or the ego and lives closely attuned to the soul or the spirit, the capital I in each of us. The deep heart is that place where, um, in the term namaste, we say, when I am in that place in me and you are in that place in you, we are only one. I believe that each of us is born with a divine mandate or sacred blueprint that has been created only for us, and that the path it's set before us is unique to every individual as are the ways we're meant to be supported in developing that path and living out that path, becoming all that we're here to be. I believe that the seeker's one true quest in this incarnated life is to discover our own holy nature, to embody this holy nature fully, and to fall deeply and unabashedly in love. To fall deeply and unabashedly in love with the magnificent, awe-inspiring mystery that resides within us, the indwelling mystery, and at the heart of all creation, dwelling outside us in everything that exists. So the deep heart in me is the place where the indwelling mystery is alive. The deep heart in creation is everything in which the mystery is alive, trees, birds, flowers, other people, creator, create, uh, creatures of all kinds. And when I am listening to my deep heart and I'm paying attention to the deep heart at the center of the universe, the mystery and I are working in attunement. We are working together in close, conscious, deep, meaningful collaboration
0: with my life. Well, the line between oneself and that, which in traditional culture is perceived to be other than oneself, kind of blurs, doesn't it?
1: It blurs completely, and we become one with everything else that exists. We see ourselves in everything around us and everyone around us. Everything mirrors us for us so that we learn more about ourselves and our souls grow and expand. And in that process, we become more of who we are meant to be. We become more embodied examples of God's mystery in the world.
0: During our break, we were talking about, you had said that there were some clergy in a spiritual tradition that were in spiritual crisis because... Yes. There was no provision made in their theological training for this.
1: Yes. In my spiritual direction practice, I work with a number of people, both lay and clergy people. And what surprises most people when I talk about my spiritual direction practice is that among the people who come to me for spiritual direction are clergy persons, clergy men, and clergy women who have, in their own unfolding spiritual lives grown beyond the theology that they learned in seminary or divinity school and have a much more expanded personal relationship with God than uh, the theology of their spiritual or religious traditions has allowed for. And they don't know how to piece this together because they're called by the uh, vows that they make upon their ordinations to preach a certain theology from the pulpit each
0: The inerrancy week. of the Bible, for example.
1: Exactly. And they no longer believe that some of those spiritual or religious principles are, I won't say true, they just are limiting. They're smaller than what is true. What is true is much bigger than what many people Uh, who live within the religious boxes or religious traditions are willing to acknowledge is true. So there are clergy people who are struggling and trying to piece together how they continue their lives as clergy, continuing to work within churches or in some way as uh, agents of spiritual wisdom in the world without having to make themselves and their own encounters with God too small so that they stay neatly compacted within those religious boxes.
0: It's really hard when you have an experience of the blurring of that boundary to go back into the box.
1: Yes, it is. It's almost impossible. For example, one of my clients is an Episcopal priest, a man, in his early 50s who has been a student of Zen Buddhism all his life. And he uh, has very nicely for himself been able to integrate his Zen practice and his Christian beliefs. But his role as a Christian priest, as an Episcopal priest, prevents him from talking about how important in his spiritual development the practice of Zen Buddhism has been.
0: Isn't there a similar sort of opportunity or discipline within the the Episcopal Church, such as meditation? or
1: Christian tradition does not really promote meditation. Christian tradition tends to promote contemplative prayer or prayer traditions. Uh, It doesn't deny meditation. It doesn't tell people not to meditate, but it doesn't encourage meditation in particular. So for this person, what happened was that he reached a point where in his meditation practice, his spirit had expanded to a much greater place than the place he could preach from on Sunday mornings in his church. His own understanding of God had grown so much bigger and more inclusive than anything that the Episcopal tradition allowed him to speak about without in some way running into difficulty with his ordination vows. So he was bumping into problems within the Episcopal hierarchy. People who thought he was being a little too outspoken on spiritual matters, a little too taking too few too many risks, and he was being asked to make himself small again and fit back into the box. This precipitated a great spiritual crisis for him because he couldn't do it. His own encounter with God had showed him Something of the nature of God that he wanted to share with other people, and yet the hierarchy of his tradition asked him to keep it within a certain language and a certain theological structure that no longer fit for his experience.
0: Well, and in effect, that had, that box had been shattered by his the experience. The box had
1: been shattered.
0: Mm-hmm. So, how is he doing?
1: <laughs> well, what happened in the end was he decided to leave the church, but remain a priest. I have had some of my clients have um, actually renounced their ordination vows and gone on into other vocations which allow them to use their theological training, hospital chaplaincy, for example, hospice work, for example. Um, And he did move into hospice work, and he is a hospice chaplain and finds it deeply rewarding, and that allowed him that diversity of faith traditions that people uh, he was working with, the families of the people he was working with, those people who were dying and their families were at a critical point in their own lives where they were open and questioning where is God and all this that's happening. And it allowed the priest to step into each one of those situations from his own understanding and experience of the mystery that is so richly embodied in every experience we have in life. He was no longer limited by the theology of the Church, and he was able to call on his practices as a Zen Buddhist meditator, his practice as an Episcopal priest, all of his reading. In fact, he's a historian and a teacher as well. So he was able to integrate all those parts of himself Into his work as hospital chaplain, as hospice chaplain, that he couldn't integrate into his work as uh, rector of a church.
0: And I really wanted to ask um, again about people's experience in the membership of the church, in the churches not meeting their needs because the box is too small.
1: Yes. I had said to you at the break that one of my Awarenesses, And sometimes I would say concerns, but most of the time I would say just one of my awarenesses is that uh, both for people who are churched and for people who are ordinary folks like me, seekers with a good heart, attempting to live out our spiritual beliefs in our everyday lives, one of the things we don't understand, because nobody has taught us this along the way, is that there are stages of spiritual development, just as there are stages of physical development and stages of psychological or intellectual development. And that at a certain point in our spiritual development it makes sense for many people, and it is a good fit for many people to be part of an organized religious community and to be following certain religious practices that are encouraged and promoted by, in many cases, ancient tradition, to be part of an ancient lineage of a particular religious tradition in which the practices have been developed over millennia, actually, of deep Um, religious searching on the part of the saints and mystics and sages of many traditions. And many people find that a good fit for them to be part of a spiritual community where those practices are at the heart of what they do together, what they share together, how they worship together, how they pray together. And, not but, and, we often grow beyond that because our own direct experiences with the mystery we call God call us beyond those practices, call us beyond those traditions. The way I put it with people is that I say God is always changing. God is continually evolving, just as humanity is continually evolving. And if we don't honor the fact that evolution, growth, Spiritual maturing, ripening, is what we're called to. Not to stay in one spiritual place for all of our lives, but to grow until we become everything Spirit asks us to become. Till we embody everything Spirit asks us to embody here on this earth. Till we bring Spirit into form. And through that, God is learning about God's own divine nature, as well as humanity is learning about God's own divine nature, and the indwelling divinity within each of us. That is such a magnificent process, and for religious traditions to overlook that or not let people know that that is part of the natural, organic journey, trajectory of a spiritual seeker to grow beyond tradition at some point, is to really be remiss. Because when people do grow, they then feel like they have somehow failed their traditions or failed themselves or done something wrong or become someone wrong because those traditions no longer fit them. I can't tell you how many people sit in my office and say, I am a recovering Catholic. Yes. I hear that term four or five or six times a week. I'm a recovering Catholic. What people mean by that is I am healing from the wounds of the Catholic Church, of the of the um, attempts by the Church to keep me within certain boxes. Yes. Yes. And my need, when one reads between the lines of what these people are saying to me, My need is to keep growing and keep growing. And being part of the Catholic Church was an important part of my spiritual trajectory, my growth as a spiritual seeker. But it was not limited to my life in the Catholic Church and is not limited. Just as for me, a Protestant by birth and by upbringing, the Protestant Church has been very instrumental in the shaping of who I am as a seeker, but I am not limited to that.
0: Even Jesus himself broke from the rabbinic tra- tradition, did he not?
1: And many and people stepped out of the box. Many people say Jesus never intended to found another church.
0: And for those of us who who do challenge, I mean, it becomes problematic for those who attempt to to maintain the box. And and there's all sorts of of things that go on to try and get people back in. And yes. and you see these people in your practice, I'm yes, sure. Yes, I
1: do. I do, so, and they're often people who carry a certain amount of shame for thinking and believing and living their lives outside the box. They carry a certain amount of um, uh, family uh rupture because they've broken from family traditions. Um, they carry a certain amount of pain because they don't know where they belong anymore spiritually
0: but these are all mechanisms that those in power put in i mean the shame thing particularly. Uh, is, uh, in my opinion, a, a, a mechanism to attempt to keep people in the box.
1: I think that's correct.
0: We're going to have to take a short break. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we are talking with my guest, Meredith Jordan. Can you give us your contact information, Meredith? I
1: sure can. It's, uh phone number is 207 That's the phone number for Rogers McKay our multi-faith organization, and our website is www.rogersmckaymckay.org
0: And we'll be right back. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're talking with my guest, psychologist Meredith Jordan. Welcome back, Meredith. Thank you, Anthony. I wanted to ask more about your book, Standing Still, because we were saying during the break that it really has to do with the further spiritual, uh, spiritual development process that we had talked about in the last segment
1: yes in embracing the mystery my first book my attempt was to bring people to an awareness that god is not the external figure somewhere in the heavens pulling all the puppet strings controlling events in our lives god is more a consciousness than a being Um, God is present in all things and all experiences, available to us at all times, if we are awake and paying attention. So my hope in my first book was to begin to move people gently out of the old way of thinking about God into a new way of thinking about God, which I hoped would enable them to have a new way of relating to God. In my second book, Standing Still, Hearing the Call to a Spirit-Centered Life, my intention was to create a book that would help people understand the importance of their part in developing a deep intimacy or relationship with the sacred mystery at the heart of all life. And Standing Still is a way of saying life around us is moving very fast faster than most of us can accommodate most of the time. My head is spinning, and I'm a fairly intelligent, fast-moving woman available to tap dance when I have to tap dance in the world. But the world is moving too fast for me. Events are happening so quickly that I can't comprehend everything that's going on and make sense of it all. So what I need to be able to stay centered and to be able to stay on my spiritual path are moments, sometimes hours, sometimes days, and occasionally even weeks or months or years of what I call standing still. Times when we pause, when we live in a kind of quiet that the Quakers call the still small voice within, Um, Some people might call solitude or silence. And we allow the voice of mystery to speak to us there. Now that is a stage of spiritual development beyond participation in organized religions. In most worship services of most religious traditions, there is a period of silence no longer than a minute within a worship service. It's very rare that there is any extended period of silence for people to listen to the voice of the mystery speaking to them. We have to create that on our own. That is not created
0: for us in a busy, noisy world. Well, we're not even taught that that's possible. That quiet is possible? Well, that the voice of God will speak to you in that silence.
1: No, we're taught that the voice of God speaks to us through the sacred texts, right. such as the Bible or uh, the Koran or the Torah. We're taught that the voice of God speaks to us through our intermediaries, rabbis, priests, ministers.
0: From their training.
1: From their training. Um, we're not taught that the voice of God might speak directly to us from our personal experience.
0: And in a way that would be considered blasphemous. In some of the it traditions. would,
1: in many of the traditions, be considered blasphemous to say that that is possible. Although, from the beginning, the rabbi and teacher Jesus went to the mountain and spent time in solitude, went to the desert and spent time in solitude, listening for the voice of God speaking to him, and taught us that that is possible for all of us.
0: Yeah, Alan Watts makes some comments in some of his lectures that um, Jesus didn't have the benefit of, although some people say that he did in in terms of his, um, the lost years, you know, um, but he didn't have the benefit of the, the normal teachings of Hindu theology where, uh, in fact, spiritual, a spiritual embraces uh, culture-wide. Yes. That his only opportunity to communicate what he had experienced was in the context of the culture which he was involved with the culture with which he grew up in so um, that was all he could really speak about so tell us more about standing still
1: well standing still as i use the phrase is not a spiritual practice it is not a meditation and it is not a form of spiritual inertia it's not stop and don't move another inch it's a way of being in the world that encourages us to notice whatever events or experiences are waiting to claim our attention and to be given their best use in our lives. It's an understanding that the mystery, another name I use for God, which by its very nature is never fully knowable, appears in different ways and forms at different points along our spiritual path in order to support us in our spiritual expansion or evolution. And so what I call standing still, Taoism calls the principle of Wu Wei, which loosely translated means, if unsure, do nothing. Pausing in stillness, we intentionally create empty space into which answers to our concerns in their own right timing may gently unfold. So standing still is an action involving no action but the conscious decision to pause and wait until clarity rises out of our confusion or our uncertainty. It's hard work standing still. It is not a passive practice. It is an active practice. And it's hard work when everything in the culture in which we live forces us to speed up, to choose action over inaction, and to purely and simply do something without awareness when the wise and prudent action is often to slow down to pay attention to be aware and to wait in silence for our next instructions to emerge from the heart of an indwelling god that's what i mean by standing still
0: i wanted to comment that there was about a week after 911 where everyone stopped they just stopped and the whole heart of humanity was opened by that. And we had an incredible opportunity to proceed in a different direction, in my opinion, than than uh, our administration has chosen. Um, the heart of the world was open at that time.
1: It was broken open. Yeah. Absolutely ripped open.
0: Yeah. This new book is written after that time with a lot of, I'm sure that, You know, I I had heard from friends that, oh, the membership of churches is doubling uh, because people didn't know where to go with that. And there was sadly less leadership in that than there might have been. Um, So do you have something that you can offer about this, about our standing still here? Well, because we still have the opportunity I mean, it, even, it becomes even more incumbent upon us.
1: I think what I would say here, Anthony, is that times such as 9-11 or the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina or just watching the news this morning on the day that you and I are recording this interview, uh, the hurricanes blowing through Alabama and the bus that the off yeah. the overpass in Atlanta this morning killing four young athletes, all of those events give us an opportunity to stop our daily busyness and reflect upon life, if we will take the opportunity to do that. Many of us don't take that opportunity. I remember Bill Moyers, in an interview he did with Pema Chodron, the Buddhist nun and um, abbess of Gampo Abbey in, in uh, Nova Scotia, talking about 9-11, and he says that on the morning of 9-11, as soon as he and his wife heard about the planes hitting the Twin Towers, they immediately got dressed and went to their offices and began to work. That's all they knew how to do. Now, I believe the invitation to us at times like that is to stop, is to be still, is to slow down and to say something extraordinary has just happened. I have no idea what it means. I have no idea where it's going to lead us. I have no idea what my response to this needs to be, except that it's time to pay attention, to be quiet, to listen, to wait for my instructions. If we could do that as not just individual people, but as a collective humanity, the wisdom that might rise up into that quiet space we create, that empty space we create, could be completely transformative, could take humanity to a totally new place with one another. I think in um, the aftermath of apartheid in South Africa, when the Forgiveness and Reconciliation Council was formed to help the citizens of white South Africa and black South Africa come to some reconciliation of their great, terrible, yawning wound of apartheid, there was some movement in this direction that um, people such as Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela and other spiritual leaders of South Africa at the time were looking for a new way to move through this terrible wound that had been created. And by creating a Forgiveness and Reconciliation Council, they opened up a way and a place for people to come with their stories, to leave their stories, to heal their stories, and to move on to a new way of being together. In creating empty space, by standing still, by pausing, by being quiet, by being solitary, We allow something new to be born in our midst. We don't know what that will be until we create the empty space. It's an act, a great act of faith, I think, to create the empty space in those moments. When the temptation is so great to go do something, fix something, make it better.
0: Well, we're going to have to take a quick break here. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and I'm here with my guest, Meredith Jordan. And um, how can people contact you, Meredith?
1: Through our website, which is www.rogersmckay.org, or through our office in Maine, which is uh, reached by 207-283-0752.
0: Very good. Well, stay tuned, and we'll be right back. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and I'm here with my guest psychotherapist, Meredith Jordan. And Meredith has written two books, uh, one that's called Embracing the Mystery, The Sacred Unfolding in in Ordinary People and Everyday Lives, and Standing Still, called Hearing the Call to a Spirit-Centered Life. And Meredith, just before we uh, took the break, um, we were talking about the wisdom that happens to show up in the silent places that people can make by just stopping yes talk to us more about that wisdom
1: well I think what happens when we create that silent space as much as we can understand what happens because there is always an element of the mystery of God in this relationship we're talking about so when we still ourselves when we quiet ourselves by any practice that we might choose to use whether that's meditation or prayer or yoga, or chanting, or there are certain forms of dance which are movement practices, but they nevertheless lead people through a series of movements that ultimately bring them to a stillness point. Uh, There are many kinds of practices that we can use to reach that stillness. When we do rest in that stillness, and create an empty space in which something new can emerge, what we do is make room for the collective wisdom of humanity, not just humanity at present, but humanity throughout the ages, to reveal itself anew in our midst. So the collective wisdom of the sages, the saints, the mystics, throughout the ages, the great wise spiritual teachers, the great psychological teachers, is available to us all if we just simply make a quiet space in ourselves to tap into that wisdom. There are also, on the planet at the present time, some amazing wisdom teachers and Many of us have never met those wisdom teachers, have never sat in their presence or heard what they have to teach us because we're so busy going about the activities of our everyday lives. Right here in California, there's Houston Smith, who is one of the great sages of all time, a man very dear and and um, beloved by me, uh, who has a great deal of wisdom to offer the world. He's in his mid to late 80s at this point, um, truly one of our great sages. And many people don't even know who Houston Smith is or why he deserves to be listened to. There are many great teachers on the planet with us from Native American tradition, indigenous practices, indigenous traditions, Judaism, Protestantism, Christianity, Islam, um, Hinduism, Buddhism, Buddhism, Um, great teachers available to us who have a lot of wisdom to offer us gained from their own spiritual lives and practices throughout the ages throughout the years of their lives eager to leave that wisdom behind as they leave their incarnated bodies and move on to whatever life is after this life we know
0: what are some things that people can do practices?
1: Meditation, of course, and there are many different forms of meditation that are very useful for stilling the mind and stilling the heart and allowing us to strip ourselves naked before God or before the mystery. Prayer is another practice that works for many people. And again, there are many different types of prayer. There is um, the very simple prayer of repeating a single word over and over again. There is contemplative prayer in which one simply creates a quiet space and waits for the voice of God to come through. There are movement practices such as yoga, which open up space within the whole integrated being for the voice of wisdom to rise up. Um, As I said before, there are dance practices that are very useful in bringing people through different forms of movement till they reach a point of stillness within themselves. Chanting does that. Um, Many traditions, Hindu chanting is a very, in in Hinduism, chanting is a very significant part of their spiritual practice of stilling themselves. Um, There are many wonderful spiritual practices that are available to us that help us to reach a quiet point within ourselves.
0: My goodness, the hour has gone so fast. Um, How can people get hold of your books? Because these books will really, um, they're, they're filled with wonderful stories.
1: That's, it's my hope that these books will go out into the world and have their own life. And as they reach the hands of people who are ready to read them and people who have eyes to see God in a new way and to hear God in a new way and to experience God in a new way, that the books will have their own life and, bring their um, uh, wisdom into people's lives and help people to feel challenged and inspired in their own spiritual growth process. So the books are available in a variety of ways. They're available at all um, independent bookstores throughout the country. They're available including um, East West Bookstore here in Mountain View, California. They're available at the major bookstores such as Borders and Barnes & Noble throughout the country. They're available at Amazon.com and through our website, www.rogersmckay.org.
0: Great. And then your phone number again?
1: 207-283-0752.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us, Meredith.
1: Anthony, it's been my pleasure.
0: Are there some final words you'd like to leave with us?
1: Yes, I would, actually. And this is a quote from another author. Not my immediate quote, but I love this quote. Um, Actually, I'm going to give you two quotes. One is an Alan Watts quote. Alan Watts says, sit or stand as you will, but whatever you do, don't wobble. Love that quote. The other quote is Paula DiArcy, who says, God comes to us disguised as our lives. God comes to us disguised as our lives. So what does that mean? We better be in those lives and paying attention because in every moment, God is present.
0: Well, thank you so much for being with us. And I'm Anthony Wright, and I am your host today on Attunement with my guest, Meredith Jordan. And uh, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for being with us, and see you next time.